In this episode of The Soul of Life, I speak with Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards, a minister in cities for 30 years, about his identity as a healer and how he stays whole as a person within Christian communities where it may not always be welcome to let your real feelings show. I was modeling my behavior on, the, on others and didn't even realize it, that um, de-emphasize any deficiency, right? Didn't honestly talk about a weakness. They, so you had to put a good face on things. The character Ned Flanders on The Simpsons is, I think, probably modeled after that. We talk about Black Lives Matter and the awakening of white people to the uncomfortable truth about the burden of fear and mistrust towards police that many black Americans carry every day. And I'm trying to figure out, like, why, why we look like a problem. What broke my heart is that she, the takeaway for her was that she, she realized, oh, when I call the police officers for help, I should warn them that my children are black. And how, in the traditions of John Lewis and Frederick Douglass, we must agitate and demand change, but that the mountain of racial and social injustice will not be lifted without love shining through our brokenness. Love, truth, these things that we see as virtues, will carry the day even though in the short run they don't seem to get you ahead. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. George Floyd was murdered a few weeks prior to my conversation with Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards. I've been having conversations with my black friends and colleagues when one of them asked me, how do you know you're white? And if you're a white person and you ask yourself this question, what happens for you? For me, there's this raw power in the question. It sort of instantly decomposed the way I might normally talk about my own racial identity. What I mean is, if I'm honest, I have no answer. Like, the truth is, I don't have to think about my race for everyday activities, like asking strangers for help or shopping. Or in my kid's school, I don't have to wonder if their teachers are seeing them as deserving of the best care and attention. So even during my very intentional conversation with Dennis about Black Lives Matter and his experience as a black pastor in predominantly white churches, I wonder if some of my reframes, the way I, I added or amplified his statements, even though I was talking about agreeing with him, I wonder if it sounded like or could sound like I'm sort of invalidating the suffering of this moment. Like, you've probably heard people respond to Black Lives Matter slogans. I, I remember this, at when, especially when the movement first started a few years ago, with saying their own slogan, like, well, all lives matter. And at least now, I think most of us, hopefully, are aware of how cutting that reframe is. It's, it's like when, if, if a good friend of yours says, you know, I'm, I've got horrible news, my, my mother just passed away. And, and 
it's as if you respond to them and immediately and say, well, that reminds you of your mother dying and sort of you, you shift the attention to your suffering when in fact what your friend really needs is space. You know, when we sympathize with someone, oftentimes we do this, we, we don't really go the extra distance. We're not really making space. We're kind of like, you know, like imagining how we are similar to that person. But empathy, empathy is a lot deeper than that. Empathy is a lot harder. And I have to admit, I'm struggling with that. And it's easy for me to do this maybe because I, again, like going back to my original point, I don't know how I'm white. I mean, you'll have to decide. The, the other main part of my discussion with Dennis is about faith. Now, it's, it's been years since I've spoken with Dennis, who officiated at our wedding 20 years ago. Yikes, long time ago. And we got to know and love Dennis's family during our time on Capitol Hill. And when I looked him up, I found him teaching at North Park Seminary, teaching theology in Chicago. Dennis has been a pastor for 30 years. His wife is a social worker. And when I got a hold of Dennis, I told him I wanted to talk about his identity as a healer. You know, I shared my story about healer burnout, why I was starting this podcast, the whole medical ordeal I went through, and, and then, of course, the being successfully treated for depression. But I also shared with him that my coming back to life led me to remember more of who I am. I, I wanted to connect to him as a person of faith. It, it seems to me that my coming back to life, the, the, the journey that I'm on and want to share with people is, is that I remembered who I am and, and that in the most, and I'll say this in the most non-religious way possible, like I know now that I belong to God. And, and I don't even know what that really means. Just like I suppose I don't really know, if I'm really being honest, I don't know what it means to be white. I know that it's not about believing in a literal God for me, but it's about having a deep and abiding sense that I belong here. I belong in this world. I belong to others, with others. I belong in this universe for a reason. And that grounding, like without having to even think about it or wonder or doubt, it's just like grounding, that faith can let me relax in the uncertainty that comes up when someone asks me, how do you know you're white? My guest today is Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards. Welcome, Dennis, to The Soul of Life. Keith, it really is good to be with you today. Thank you. You're welcome. I'd, I'd like to kind of start right in. You know, I, I want to talk about your career as a healer, and, and I'm using that term, and I want to ask you how you feel about that term. You've been a, a minister for how long now? I'm, decades, we can say. Yeah, about 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> And, and uh, I 
wanted to speak to you today as a healer. Uh, and I'm interested in how you feel about that. I, I, I'd like to know a little bit about how you define yourself um, as your, in your identity as, as a minister um, helping people. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I have uh, at times reluctantly taken on that, <laughs> that title or role of healer. And I have read uh, Henri Nouwen's book, uh, Wounded Healer, and it was something that ministered to me because I realized that that pastors are caregivers. Uh, even though I resisted that uh, title, I think because it felt too formal for me, you know, to say a healer. I felt like someone like you had to be really especially trained in that way. And pastoral care was a part of my training, but it wasn't the center of my training. But I found at times that I really did wear that uh, title of healer. Um, I think of myself as a teacher. I think of myself as a, uh, a shepherd in a good sense of that word, maybe not literally like, you know, I don't have sheep, <laughs> but it's a good metaphor for pastor. For, well, that's what pastor means. Yeah. It's a good metaphor for what we do. So yeah, I think of myself as a caregiver. Yeah. The, the, the uh, person you're referencing, uh, Henri Nouwen, I think he died in the late 90s when I was in uh, getting my undergraduate degree in biblical studies. I want to say he died in Canada uh, shooting a film about the uh, about his uh, book The Prodigal Son. Uh, I'm just remembering that now, but that, you know that sort of he was an influential person in my spiritual development, um, moving away from what I would say kind of a fundamentalist sort of chokehold on yeah. on my yeah. soul um, towards one that was more spiritual and more. Uh, I think he would call himself would have called himself mystical. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, which is dealing with um, the transcendent nature of our faith. And, and, and the quote that I, I want to share with people is from his book, The Wounded Healer. Um, and, and it's simply this, who can take away suffering without entering it? Hmm. Right? Who can take away suffering yeah. without entering it? And, um, hmm. you know, I know you've walked with many, many people over the years in your ministry. Um, and I just wonder what that means to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, and and uh, and you're right. I would say now and was certainly a, a, a mystic in that sense, right? I mean, it helps us to get beyond some of the rigidity of faith to get to the to the, like you said the transcendence. I think you know it's it's unrealistic to say that we would experience every. Uh, the exact same experience of our parishioners, right? I mean, if you're a minister, your people are experiencing so many different things. But it's it's it it is realistic to say we we should be able to identify with pain in some sense. So if I'm ministering to somebody who's been divorced and I'm not divorced, it doesn't mean I can't uh, connect in some way because of other pain that I experienced. So I do think that suffering should be recognized as part of our identity, part of our experience, part of our way of being. And I do think there's a tendency, and maybe I don't want to get ahead of any questions you might have, but I think there's a tendency, certainly within the Christianity of America, to, uh, to push aside suffering or pain and to, and to minimize it or even to demonize it so that we can't learn from it or we somehow have to reject it outright when I think the scriptures are guiding us in a different way 
to embrace this pain and suffering in a way that turns us into better disciples and better, uh, well, to take your language, better healers. Yeah. Mm. Can you can you say more about how you teach that? Uh, you 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 teach at a seminary, um, and yeah. so you're you're preparing young men and women, I imagine, to be mm-hmm. um, shepherds, as you put it, to be uh, those yeah. that 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 kind of put a a sign on themselves, a target on themselves. It says, you know, come to come to me for help. I remember right. you know, the, the the Peanuts comic, you know. Charlie Brown and the the psychiatry sort of like oh yeah you know, the shingle that the, literally the shingle that get that gets hung, got hung out and oh know, yeah like, right <laughs> so I forget what it yeah, says that's that. right so, oh, I think it's Lucy and she Lucy. says like psychiatrist five cents or something five like cents. that like, <laughs> yeah I, I know I can picture anyway what you mean yeah well yeah thanks for the question I, and I am honored to be a seminary professor that really is something that I don't take lightly I mean I've been in ministry I've been adjunct so I was wearing two hats and now I'm full-time professor but I am um, but you know I teach New Testament so that means I am doing technical stuff like like uh, Greek and uh, exegesis and stuff like that but because I've been a pastor I can't help but to also bring in part of my experience. So not every New Testament professor has that pastoral experience to bring in. So, so I would say to answer your question, I, I am able to walk with students and hopefully share with them from my experiences. So one, one thing I think of in particular, it's, it's in the book of First Peter, it's a New Testament book, and Peter, uh, the apostles with Jesus, he says something toward the end of the book. He says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and it's interesting, because he could have said as a witness of the resurrected, triumphant, victorious Christ. But he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, I appeal to you, you know, other leaders in the church, to shepherd God's flock. To, to, uh, and he uses that word, well, it's, I don't want to get technical, but it's a word that means to look over, to guard, to, to give care to. So he's saying, I understand how this works. I've seen the suffering Jesus. I've seen the way he ministered to us. And this is what I'm asking of you all. And he says um, that you would shepherd the flock. And then he goes on to appeal for them to exercise humility in this process. So I try to encourage my students that way. So you saw what I was doing, trying to take some, some scripture passages and even looking at the language in the detail. But I wanted it to be real, right? I wanted to resonate with where they are. So, yeah, that's kind of how it works for me in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being real, right? That, that sounds kind of juicy, <laughs> like as a, yeah. you know, as a, as a professional psychotherapist, it's, it's uh, most of the time we're just, if I can sort of boil it down in a nutshell, all we're doing is just asking people to show up and be themselves and, 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 and offering them the, the invitation to just, to just do it. It's actually very simple to be real. It's very basic and it's very I, I don't want to say it's easy because I think life makes it not easy, but <laughs> there's reasons why we kind of armor up as one, one of my colleagues yes. puts it and reasons why we, we put walls up and have to carry around those walls with us everywhere we go. So, you know, I'm, I'm always in the business of trying to just say, Hey, you know, I noticed you're carrying something there. You ever thought of putting it down? <laughs> you know, yeah. ever, oh, man. Ever, ever thought of, um, you know, not carrying it around, you know, what, how, how, how can you move through things more lightly, yeah. you know? Wow. And yeah. So, I mean, That's I, good. I, I <laughs> thanks. I mean, I wonder what energizes you, Dennis, um, yeah. you know, over mm. these years, 
um, you're, you're, you mentioned that that being in as a seminary professor, it, it it's sort of a privilege. It is a privilege, right? I mean, you you get yeah. to be, you have the privilege, I would say, or I'm not sure what word you would use, but you have the luxury or um, mm-hmm. time. You know, I'm reading a book called Timefulness right now. It's it's about geology. Uh, geology actually, it's fascinating. Okay. Um, and, <laughs> And I, that reminds me, I do want to ask about how you got into this, because I know you have a science background. Um, but actually, let's do that. How, okay. Why did you choose ministry? And, 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 um, sure. Yeah, well, let me try to tie together some of these things, because you're, you're, you've raised some really good points, and I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I was always interested in science as a kid. I would say really more so mathematics. I mean, math just made good sense to me. I like the logic of it. And in fact, there's a certain aesthetic beauty to watching a problem get solved, um, whether that was in algebra, which was my favorite thing, uh, algebra and, and uh, trig, and, and then moving on to uh, calculus. So I did that in high school, and I thought, I don't know what to do with my life. But for some reason, I didn't think about just majoring in math and being a, you know, a researcher or something. I, I had a pragmatic side, so, so, and I also like chemistry, so I majored in chemical engineering. But along the way, I realized I wasn't as uh, excited or juiced about that, you know, even though I had some good uh, internships and I finished up, got my degree. But I wound up becoming a teacher, a math and science teacher, and I found that the classroom fit me well. But along the way, I was uh, um, burdened. That sounds like a very Christian kind of a word, but because it can be a good thing to have a burden, it could be a bad thing, right? But it was... uh, it was a pressure that I felt that I was supposed to be doing something else with my life. And uh, the long story short is that I pursued seminary education at the prompting of a pastor who, who felt like God really was calling me to ministry. I, I believed that, but I didn't know what ministry in that broad sense of the word might look like. So I assumed it meant pastoral ministry when I actually, that ministry could have taken a lot of forms and I find you know, teaching to be one of them. Uh, that I that that resonates with me, but yeah, it was at the prompting of some others who were seeing in me some qualities that they thought uh, God was was using for for me to you know work in the church in that way. So, so that transition happened for me, uh, you know, as a young guy in my twenties, and and I moved from science teacher, math teacher to seminary student to pastor in that that way. Do you do you still have any? Um chemistry or science books on your nightstand at home? I mean, what, do you, what are you reading for, for, to, to, to tickle your scientific uh, well, parts you know, of you? That, that's actually an interesting question because I, I don't really as much. I mean, maybe an article from time to time, but I find myself not, not um, that, that I, I'm neglecting that side of me in a way that it makes me feel badly. So, you know, you bring it up and I feel kind of sad <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not. Uh, I'm sorry, man. Well, no. <laughs> Well, see, you therapists, you always ask these questions that make us, you know, Shoot. get introspective and stuff. But, but the, I mean, the upside of it is I am interested. So when I see things with numbers and such, I'm not intimidated. I mean, I, I sit mm-hmm. on some boards and, you know, they'll bring out the spreadsheets. And, and one person said to me, you're not intimidated by numbers. I said, no, no, I have the, you know, this math background. So that's been helpful. But I don't really read as much as I would like in terms of the more, say, theoretical things about science or maybe even the, inter- the, the connection of science and faith. Uh, but 
but I've got a lot of stuff I'm reading. So, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> Fair it's, in, the, it's in my it's, interest, but it's, in it's the not mix. there. Right? It's in the mix. I mean, that would be a, a, another conversation we'll have. I'm, I'm going to be having a guest on hopefully soon uh, who wrote a book about Einstein's uh, work and he's a science writer. And so, you know, talking about the edges of um, both science and, you know, just reality, you know, it's when you're, when you're talking about um, entering into someone's suffering, right? Yeah. I, I think you said to me just now, you know, we can't really do that. It's almost as though you said to me, it's impossible. Like you're suffering. I can be with you. I can, I can be next to you. I can't really be in your shoes, right? Physically, um, in reality. And it's, I just find it so fascinating when I start talking to scientists who are for different reasons, working on these problems of why, of how matter works and how matter actually behaves at the cosmic uh, or microscopic level and, and come to find out it gets funky. Uh, it, well, I can I, I can only imagine I can only imagine that because I've you know from the little that I do know and have heard that it it does get funky on a cosmic level, you know, on, on, on a microscopic level, on a subatomic level. I mean, there's so much that's going on that that few people in the world understand or know or even how it connects. Something you just said there, though, I wanted to comment. I I one of my earlier teaching jobs, I the chair of the science department. Well, let's put it this way: all the faculty had their background on a list and their education. So I was just going through one day and I saw the chair of the science department had a master of divinity degree. I was surprised because I also, you know, at that time I was teaching math and also had a master of divinity degree. So I asked him about that. And he said, yeah, he said, I, I, I wound up going to seminary at one point. He said, because science didn't give me all the answers I was looking for. Now I never found out if he got the answers he was looking for, but he saw some connection between uh, his faith and and scientific inquiry and such. So I appreciated that that I I have that same kind of interest, even though I uh, you know didn't pursue it the same way he did. So um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I would like to listen to that person talk about Einstein. So. Yeah, somehow to me it feels very much the same, and I, I don't think we have the words or the language to to quite explain how they are the same. How teaching math or chemistry is really the same about talking about um, the suffering that, that you just referred to by quoting the New Testament. Like somehow I think it, it's the same and, and, and maybe we'll, we'll find the language, but that, that's, wow. that's why I'm doing this. So, so I mean, what, what energizes you, Dennis? Um, yeah. You know, we yeah. all have good days and bad days. We all have, you know, I, you know, as a professor, I imagine there's days when your students are just, I don't know, <laughs> pissing you off or I don't know yeah like <laughs> well I've got a lot of bad days but yeah <laughs> online well, teaching. Ask, well oh my that that's been difficult uh making these transitions you know it's funny I I you know some of my students are not that young although there's this there's sort of this image of folks who go to college and then go to seminary and, and some do do that so I have a few but a lot of them are, are like I was second career people are coming back to school and some are you know 30s 40s 50s and they're struggling to um, get back into an education rhythm when they didn't have it for a while. And so I find myself very sympathetic to those folks and, and really um, trying to be as sensitive as I can to what they're going through. But you know, I, I find myself a lot of days frustrated. I mean, we talked earlier about being real and, and uh, I've been in ministry now, yes, for about 30 years. And, and there's 
always a constant pressure. I feel it anyway, I can't speak for others, but I have felt a constant pressure to, to have a good positive face on things, to, to be the, uh, the uh, cheerleader and to be the person that is trying to make everybody be up, you know? I felt that for a while. I'm not saying I feel it now, but I felt that for a while and didn't know how to uh, uh, just be myself and articulate that I'm not feeling that right now. And, and I'm not sure that even the circumstances requiring me to feel that way. <laughs> but, but I felt this pressure that if you're not the most positive person in the room, then, then somehow you're letting people down. You couldn't be yourself. You couldn't articulate that. I'm finding myself... Um, way more honest as the years go by with how I'm feeling. And I'll, I'll say to, to people, I'm not feeling, you know, X or, uh, well, I shouldn't pick a math variable, right? <laughs> Why not? I'm not feeling, <laughs> yeah, right, okay. <laughs> but you can pick that feeling, right? I'm not feeling so positive today. Or something that I read or heard or something on the news or something on my family or something is not going well. And I'm just going to tell you guys. And so I even start classes with, checking in with students and say, hey, anybody want to share anything we can? I say, if you feel comfortable and we'll take a few minutes to pray and to, you know, get together. And I've had a few who take me up on that and I'll share with them. You know, I'm dealing with something when one of my, my youngest was you know, expecting during this pandemic, I, I asked my students to, to be praying for us because it's a nervous time to be expecting a baby during the, during the pandemic. So I, I share with them a bit of my concerns and anxieties, but I admit I've gotten more comfortable with that being older. I feel like there's less pressure on me now, and I wish I felt this way when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're reminding me that in, in, in our field, in psychology, um, for those listeners who are psychology geeks out there, you know, our field has gone through this positive psychology movement, which I want to say was mm. 90s. I, I, I'm, I'm speaking out mm. of school a little bit right now, but, you know, um, Seligman, um, you know, coming up with the, the idea that, you know, positivity, like there's this, there's this crazy study out there that, that if you smile, like the act of moving your facial mm. muscles actually creates oh, yeah. a, a chemical response in the brain body that mm. is, you know, it's like a feedback loop. It's, it's, mm. it's like it, 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 uh, it's biofeedback. So with smiling actually makes you feel better. And so if you put a pencil in your mouth and, and just the, because if you hold huh? a pencil with your teeth, that's going to move the muscles right here that make you smile, then apparently that's, that's going to make you happier, whatever. I, I did not know that. Okay. <laughs> it's probably but, good that you didn't know that. Okay. But I've heard a lot of similar language, especially, excuse me, <clears throat> especially in Christian circles where you're supposed to just say positive things. I mean, and that movement maybe coincides because that was a lot in the late eighties into the nineties where people use this language of a positive confession. And so you say positive things and, Hopefully, well, you should believe that there then positive things will happen. Um, I guess I'm not I'm not challenging people being optimistic and such. I mean, I I don't know enough about this field, but I am saying that I have found better connection with people when I'm honest about how I'm feeling. Exactly, and and that connection has helped them. So I'll yes. say it that way. Yeah, no, that sounds so beautiful. And in fact, I'm I'm happy we're <laughs> happy we're over the happiness movement. I mean, right? <laughs> okay. No, but. Really, we have we've we've now integrated a lot more and know a lot more, in fact, about how the brain works. And so we know, for example, that that it requires energy to be, to make yourself be positive. Um, whether you want to admit if you're a Simpsons fan or not, that's that's a question for you. But I am a Simpsons fan, and the character the character Ned Flanders on the Simpsons is, I think, probably modeled after that 
um, you know, yes, kind of the, yes. the Oakley Doakley. Um, yeah, kind of right, right. You know, just always positive, <laughs> always, always doing well, um, always pray, have, has a praise on his lips or something. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about kind of, you know, being real and how actually, whether we're talking about being real or broken or um, imperfect, all of those things are themes that people like Brene Brown, uh, now very popular, but it, mm -hmm. it's, it's coming out of really the research in the brain and finding out, oh, you know, actually when we are able to be ourselves and all these emotions have a purpose, even ones we don't like, they have a purpose. And so when we let yeah. them, when we give them a place at the table, they, they usually become good guests at the table, more or less. So um, I wanted to ask you about Black Lives Matter and the um, explosion of interest, which to me has been so heartening um, since the horrific murder of George Floyd. Um, it's, it seems to me that, Dennis, it's, it's an opportunity. It's, it's an opportunity for growth in our collective understanding of how we, we have these implicit beliefs about race, all of us do, that need to be discussed and absorbed, you know, at deeper levels than, than we've been doing before. It's like we've been getting by with this anemic diet. Like, you know, we, we, you know, we have a black president and we think that's, that's it. That's all, you know, good enough. That's it. We don't close the book on this thing. Um, and, and so it's like we're, we're, we're being forced to look at our diet uh, how, how much we are absorbing in our implicit beliefs. I heard one story um, that I want to relate to you um, and share with people that I, I heard reported on a radio. And I wonder how you would respond to this story if somebody in your community um, had something like this. And I know you and I know a person who passed away this year who th that's who remind this story reminds me of a woman who's yeah. white, was white, married to a black man, their children are black. Um, and this story just wrenched my heart. It, it, it immediately brought tears to my eyes. So a white woman was talking about how she takes it for granted that, that, that when you're white, you call the police for help, you know, uh, and, and that's a good thing, right? I think we could all agree. One, one night her husband was away and she was home alone with the kids. She heard a noise in the backyard and, and she was frightened. This, this wasn't a good noise. This didn't sound good to her. And so she called the police and they came. And, and they went into the backyard and checked it out and everything was fine there. They came around to the front door and knocked and, and asked, you know, ma'am, is it okay if we come in and look around? They were, they were just being nice. They wanted to make sure everything was okay in the house. And, but they came in with guns drawn. Hmm. And, uh, you know, things are moving fast, I imagine, for this yeah. woman as she's recounting yeah. the story. So she says, yes, of course, come on in. And uh, they're just trying to be helpful. So they look around and, and didn't find anybody, you know, no, no sign of forced entry or anything. And so they left. And as this woman was kind of like calming down, coming down from all the excitement and adrenaline, I imagine maybe her pulse was coming down. She, like a wave of terror swept over her. She realized for the first time her mistake was that she didn't tell the officers that her children do not look like her. She had adopted two, two children that were black and that she had two children of her own with her husband that were white mm -hmm. and they were home in the house. And if her young black teenage son had darted across the house as these officers were looking for yeah. someone bad, they could, have, they could have unloaded their guns into her family. And so what broke my heart is that she the takeaway for her was that she 
she realized, oh, when I call the police officers for help, I should warn them that my children are black. And I, I don't have words. I, I, I don't have words. Um, what, what reactions do you have when you hear a story like yeah. this? You know, I, I, uh, I do, well, on the one hand, I appreciate this woman's uh, sensitivity and realization to the way things are in the world. I think the other part is that um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think there's a fair number of white people who don't, who don't think it's an issue at all. And that's the part that really annoys me. My own kids who are all over 30, um, they say, you know, we don't call the police. I mean, what, why would we call the police? They, they see no reason to invite the police into their world. I've, we've had some frustrating situations. I won't uh, uh, give the, the, all the details because one of them is going to face litigation. But uh, I mean, we've had, I had my son-in-law pulled over, I'll just say that way, for apparently um, failing to uh, use his turn signal. And, uh, and he was surrounded by uh, several cop cars and um, taken out of the car, arrested. And you think, you know, I thought this was the kind of thing you get a ticket for if, that, if he indeed violated the law in that way. But they, uh, they escalated the situation. My, my, um, I have. There's too many stories, but I don't mm. want it to 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 um, just be a series of anecdotes. I want to give the impression that even when we don't have a dangerous encounter with the police, like this one could have become, there's always a fear that we're going to be suspected of something even though we didn't do anything. I mean, I've been followed in the store and now as I get older, I might be seen as less of a threat, but when I was a younger guy, yeah, I was pulled over. I got uh, police uh, surrounding me when I was going into my apartment in, in, in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm trying to figure out like why, why we look like a problem, you know? And uh, so I have had, um, yeah, so that's been a frustrating point, but I, I'm sympathetic to this woman's situation, but I, I sometimes feel like when, when white people become um, aware that this is an issue, that they, they can become sympathetic, which I appreciate, um, but then it stops there. They're not seeing that it's, a, it's a something that is like wrong with our society that needs to be fixed. Right, yeah. right. Well, and, and, and this is the point that I want to I wanna deepen a little bit with you, if we can. You know, the, the idea that something needs to be fixed and, and, and demanding action, it, it, it makes sense. And I get it. Um, you know, I, one, one of the things that I kind of wish, I guess, as a healer at heart, I, I kind of had this fantasy that, that this woman, instead of, um, you know, the takeaway for her being, I've, I've got to warn my kids that the police, uh, you know, warn the police that my kids are black. And instead of that, I wish that she had somehow realized and kind of, you know, accepted all of her feelings and then reached out to the police and, and brought them back in and broke bread with them somehow and broke down mm. uh, for them and maybe just broke down, you know, maybe just actually allowed them to witness her fully yeah. in, in, in that terror um, and, 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 and reached out to them and called them in. Um, what, what I'm, what worries me is about uh, demanding action. You know, I mean, Dennis, if you, if, you know, if you're my friend and I call you up and demand action, every time you get a phone call from me, I'm demanding action from you. <laughs> I don't know how long yeah. we're going to be friends. 
Yeah, well, I mean, right. So yeah. th- this idea of demanding action, and I, and I want to read a, a quote from Frederick Douglass, actually. John, mm. John Lewis passed away, the late uh, civil rights leader, contemporary of Dr. Yeah. Martin Luther King, yeah. leader in Congress. Frederick yeah. Douglass said this, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And he says, what to the slave is the 4th of July? Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. Without a struggle, there can be no progress. I prayed for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. That soul is the soul that is within me. No man can degrade. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress the white man's happiness cannot be purchased by the black man's misery. I'm not sure how many people are meditating on the words of Frederick Douglass right now. Maybe they are, but John Lewis went out for a jog the other day and John, you know, just, just jogging through my park in, in our neighborhood. And I stopped in my tracks because on the ground was some sidewalk chalk and some children had written um, these words of John Lewis. And he said, you know, I think he kind of just sums up what Frederick Douglass lived for when John Lewis said, when you see something that's not right, not fair, not just, you have to speak up. You have to say something. You have to do something. So my question for you is, I wonder, what is it we have to do? What should we be doing as, as spiritual leaders, as healers, um, to be calling people in to connection, calling people into this effort, this heavy lift that we have to do to move this mountain of oppression that is, you know, got its tentacles in our prison system, in our education system everywhere, uh, like a virus, right? We're fighting a virus right now. We all know how uh, pernicious this virus is. And so what do we have to do as leaders, spiritual leaders? Well, I, I'll speak for myself, although I, I hope that it would resonate with others. There's several levels here. I mean, one, as you mentioned, like the woman and uh, dealing with the police and her children, um, there's an interpersonal level, right? There is a there is a friendship level. There's a there's a neighbor level, and and it's it's right, it's godly, it's it's authentic to want to build a good relationship with one's neighbors across whatever divides there may be, you know, race, income whatever. But that's only part of it. Uh, The other part is an institutional part, because even if I uh, have this ideal, and I I run into this all the time, especially with white Christians and their churches, they say, well, we just, our neighborhood's all white. But they never stop and ask, why is their neighborhood all white? I mean, so so they say, our church can't be more diverse. So, you know, our neighborhood's all white. We we don't know how to do X, Y, Z. But But they're not asking questions about what set up this mess you know what set up the society in such a way what is the basis of of america's um uh, wealth that it, it it used slaves and it made uh made uh, it oppressed pretty much everybody that wasn't of european background what why why don't we examine that so there are some institutional things that need to happen as well as interpersonal things so i think it's a it, they, they work together and and I, my hope would be that um that spiritual leaders and other leaders would help people to see both of those things, that, that the change in legislation 
voting rights like 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 John Lewis worked for um, those kinds of things can go in tandem with me having a meal with my neighbor right um, mm -hmm. so so I, I guess I want to say it that way there's so so on, on, on a per interpersonal level some fears can be broken down when relationships are built but on an institutional level we can help keep people be safer help our us, uh, our society be more just and I think they go hand in hand you're listening to the soul of life podcast with me Keith Miller every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world if this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged I want to hear from you and please share the love Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. Right, right. Something that, that hit home for me a couple of years ago, my, uh, my cousin's son, who was in his 20s, uh, my, you know, my cousin's white like me, her mm -hmm. son in her 20s, uh, in his 20s, overdosed on opioids. Oh, my and and died and so i'm at you know i went up to the funeral to grieve with the family and what was coming to my mind is is this you know so i worked as a social worker in the early 2000s in downtown dc in, in some of the 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 most poverty stricken hardest hit by poverty neighborhoods in in maybe the country but certainly in dc anacostia one of my clients um his name was elliot um <laughs> and he 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 walks in the room and you, the first thing you see is first of all he's he pretty scary looking guy cuz he's he's mm. really not taking care of himself but the first mm. thing you see is that his lips are completely burned off oh. and i mean like recently burned off like like today like and so oh. he because he was addicted to crack cocaine he would yeah. keep the pipe in his mouth oh. and let it burn his mouth his face it didn't matter so crack um, as some people who are listening may know this was, uh, especially in the, in the nineties, eighties, nineties, a predominantly black drug. It afflicted, uh, the black, black communities more than white communities. White people were addicted to cocaine, black, <laughs> this is in mm -hmm. sort of a socioeconomically sort of yeah. how things were breaking down. And so, but a crack addiction gets you in jail. Elliot was one of the lucky guys who had our services. And so I became, as a social worker, basically his friend who would show up and dress him in the morning, make sure he got an injection so that he wouldn't go, you know, an injection of, of good medicine so mm. that he wouldn't go and use yeah. and abuse drugs. And so as I'm at my, as I'm at this funeral for my family member and I'm, I'm realizing that there's, there's now, um, you know, we're decriminalizing right? We're decriminalizing. Now that young white boys are dying from overdoses, we're, we're decriminalizing. We're saying, well, they're not going to go to jail for, for this, for possession. They should get treatment. And, and I'm hearing police chiefs across the country come out. And it's about time. It should have happened in the 80s and 90s. And it should have happened during the crack epidemic. Um, that's just a little rant. I, I apologize. But that, oh, you're right. And I agree. <laughs> I, I mean, right. Like when we talk about systems and how did this mess right. happen, right? It, it comes right. from our biases in medicine, right? Our biases yeah. in medicine, even. Um, and I'll be talking to doctors and talking about their training and, and, and how they're underpinning beliefs. Um, and and yeah. can they can they transcend them and actually just really be there for people, be real. Yeah. 
Um, well, let, let me just jump in on that. I, I really appreciate that analysis. And, and I think when people look more deeply, they'll find, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist kind of a person, but they're really, it's more insidious how crack was even brought into our inner cities. But that's, that's a piece of it. But the other question is, once we come to a realization as a, as a society that we want to treat addicts as opposed to punish them, what do we do about all the people that we did punish, right? I mean, there's a bunch of folks in prison because they had they were low-level drug offenders or they, they uh, had an addiction and they, they committed a crime out of that. Are we going to do anything to make up for that? And that's a tougher problem to, or question to get at. So it's, it's a similar argument to reparations, and I know that kind of goes far afield, but the point is you can stop at one point and say, oh, what we did was wrong, let's just move on. But what about the legacy of all that wrong that was done? And I think there's something biblical about um, making restitution in some sense. It's like the story of Zacchaeus, the guy who climbs up a tree because he's too short to see Jesus uh, walking through the crowd, and Jesus meet, eats at his house, and Zacchaeus is so moved by, all, by his encounter with Jesus, he says, uh, being a tax collector and having some wealth, that he would give back um, uh, whatever he's taken unfairly, he would give to the poor. He, would, he was, he was going to basically clean out his coffers to, to make restitution. And, uh, and Jesus says, you know, salvation's come to your house. There's, the, there's this sense of making things right as best we can anyway. That's a question I think that still is hanging out there for our society. Absolutely, and and, and it strikes me that the that the injustice we can we can flip it a little bit on its head. I think we can use language if we are careful to to say we can use the word reparations, and it's an important word. And it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's this you know erase culture. What, what is it called? Cancel culture. Oh yeah, cancel culture. Right. Cancel culture. So I'm sure there's people out there that want to cancel the word reparations. It's just it's a word that brings up a lot, right? Um, yeah. Why not, though? Why not talk about investment, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't, I, I think, you know, we're at the point now with young children, and this, and this was not the case in the 50s, the 40s and 50s, where pediatricians would say to their par- to parents of children, the teaching was, do not hug or kiss your child, do not tell them that you love them, maybe once a year. That's the way science was, <laughs> medicine was teaching mm-hmm. about spoiling children. So we used to look down on children and say they, they, they provide no value to us. We show, do not invest in them. And so I think people um, forget that once upon a time, we did not invest in children. And we don't call education reparations for children. <laughs> you know, like, right? You know, like, yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they have something to offer. The men and women who are sitting in prisons today have something to offer. And, yeah. and we are squandering that investment. Um, but we're not investing, and they just anyway they deserve it. But that's that's a social worker talking. If, if a social worker could yeah. could could rule the world, we would have an academy. Prisons would be academies, and we would actually. Well, I'll pull a little plug for my school because I teach at North Park Theological Seminary, and we have a program called the School of Restorative Arts in in a prison. It's been getting a lot of attention, unfortunately, because of the you know pandemic, things are uh, in disarray. But it's been an, a wonderful program of seeing, um, uh, in this case, men who who, have, who are excited about faith and it's excited about learning, excited about getting a degree, and watching how how their lives definitely have something to contribute to our society, whether we uh, see it or not at first. 
That sounds great. No, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. No, and if, if, if there's any way for us to put a, a link to that on the, on the show website or, or oh, just, just sure. a link to what you're doing at, at, at mm-hmm. the seminary, I think that would be yeah. something of interest for people. Um, awesome. You know, one, one final question, I guess, and, and I, I, guess, I guess because of who I am uh, and what I, I've learned about my spell, myself, especially over this past mm-hmm. year, going through what I would call a burnout myself and in mm-hmm. ways that I, you know, you're not able to see it yourself. It's like a fish in the water. You don't really see that you're burned out until, you know, suddenly uh, things around you aren't looking familiar. So I, I went through this process of finding myself and really who I am. Um, I, I wonder, so I, I, who I am is somebody who goes deep. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I want to go deep with you on this. Like what, um, what is it, do you think, about what stops us from, from breaking down more? from breaking ourselves down when we're around people in power. Um, you know, it, it seems like we, you know, especially I'm hearing from political leaders um, who, who I, who, frankly, I'm, I'm cheering for them to, to make noise and to agitate and say, we've got to change these things. Like Frederick Douglass yeah. said, we've got to make yeah. the noise, bring the noise, right? And so I'm cheering for those people. At the other hand, I'm grieving. I'm grieving because I'm not hearing about... Um, how do we do this in such a way that we do not set up more oppression? In other words, uh, as a marriage counselor, very, very common principle, and it's a rule of thumb that gets me out of trouble almost all the time with people in conflict. It's yeah. teaching this idea that you can stand up for yourself without putting anybody down. Yeah. So I don't have to focus on you. If I'm, if I'm angry, if I'm aggrieved, by something if i if i need something i don't have to yeah. i don't have to push on you or to pull myself up yeah. I, I i can stand up in lots of ways and with 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 people around me without putting you down um can you speak to this well, you know, why is, is wow well that's <laughs> I, I i'll speak to it a little bit from what i from my experience but you're you're more the expert because of that your your background and training but we, we, we don't have as a society some you know, very good models on this, right? We have, unfortunately, even in our political leadership, we have got to, we hear our leaders say, uh, you know, have to demonize the other party to establish their own voice rather than letting certain actions be um, uh, uh, um, carried by facts and, and data and such. So I think we, we it's just ingrained in our society that we we have to somehow put down others so we can rise up. This is this is seems to be a human thing, right? But I think you're you're right in that if we follow the way of Jesus, there's something that we see in Jesus that he says and does that demonstrates um, uh, that love, truth, these things that we see as virtues will carry the day, even though in the short run, they don't seem to get you ahead. I mean, I mean, Jesus was crucified, right? So, but, but there's a resurrection, there's a, there's a change, there's a turn. So I think there's something to be said about, even though the short run, it doesn't look like being honest or being fair or being, you know, not being self-seeking won't get you ahead. It, it, it certainly doesn't look that way. But in the long run, that it, it will uh, get you there. I mean, the Bible again says um, that that God resists uh, those who are proud and haughty, 
but will elevate, will, will bless, will, will um, uh, uh, honor those who are humble. So there's a sense that there's a turnaround and, and that kind of turnaround is all throughout the Bible actually. So I don't know, I, I, I guess I don't have good, ed, good advice or strategy on how one does that, but I do wanna say that I do think it, 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 it matters in the long run. I'm fishing for the right words because I, I'm, I'm realizing that for me, it, it took a while to learn that because I was modeling my behavior on, the, on others and didn't even realize it that um, de-emphasize any deficiency, right? Didn't honestly talk about a weakness. They, so you had to put a good face on things. And I, and I didn't feel good doing that, but I thought that's what one was supposed to do. And then I realized, you know, if I just be Dennis, um, and, and I struggled to be Dennis. I mean, I had to get my years of therapy and deal with, with, with enough uh, counsel to find that it's okay to be Dennis. And, and in being Dennis, I can expect God to handle the difficulties to help me handle the difficulties that come my way. So that's, that's probably a longer answer than you were asking, but that's the way my mind was working this out. It's really, it's, it's beautiful. No, I, to, hear you, to hear you say that, it means a lot. Especially in African-American community, it took us a long time, and I still think there's a stigma against uh, mental health resources. So um, at, at least in the Christian community, and maybe even beyond that, that somehow prayer by itself is sufficient when it doesn't necessarily do all that we needed to do in terms of you know the self-examination, the, the, the healing, what all that takes place. I'm, I'm, prayer is part of it for sure, but I think that um, we need to be more comfortable with getting therapeutic, getting therapeutic resources. Can, can you can you say more about that? Why why do you think it is? Why do you think it has taken a longer time for the African American community to to be more open to mental health or, or, or health treatment? Is it, is it just mental health or is it, you know, what? Well, I think, I think there's probably a couple of things going on. One is there's a historic disconnect and distrust with the medical profession. I mean, cause we've been abused. We've been Tuskegee of experiments. Tuskegee comes readily to mind for sure. So there's that there's the, and, and we're seeing it play out with COVID-19, right? There's mm. this, we're in these vulnerable jobs and have vulnerable health concerns that uh, more of us are getting uh, infected and, and sick. And there's still this, um, so, so we're seeing the vestiges of something, right? Uh, so there's, it's in the system again that, <laughs> that we don't trust the medical professionals. But I would also say there's another piece though that, um, that everybody is dealing with, with, with the notion that it's weak, it's weakness to go seek you know, mental health help and um and i think that perception of weakness is something that maybe in our world we've seen our ancestors and others deal with things without those resources so maybe we think oh we should be able to just you know power through so i i i wonder if that's also at work this sense that we've not seen it modeled we've seen people power through so we figure i don't i don't need that or i shouldn't need that um, but and that's I feel more like that, anecdotal. I, I feel like that's, that's cross-cultural in many ways, too, because yeah, if we go yeah. back to the, whether it's the Puritans or the Cowboys mm -hmm. in the West, like, you know, the John mm -hmm. Wayne stereotype, it's, it's leave me the hell alone, I'm fine. Yeah, good um, point, good point. You're right, you're so, right. That's probably is universal, yeah. <laughs> but because, uh, I mean, we, you know, I guess we had it, everyone had it tough at a certain point, but um, yeah. 
No, no, your your um, I, I your message I feel like is important, and and our message, which is that hey, um, help is there, and <laughs> this is something we it's a human thing. We all need help, and it's and it's available in many forms, whether it's your pastor or your uh, yeah. some you know, somebody that you, that you know your family um, uh, just having contact more contact with one another, especially yeah. during this time. I just so admire what you're doing and 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 how you're doing it. You know, I've moved a long way away from maybe what what uh, our friend Kurt Thompson, who I interviewed, oh, uh, yeah. would would call the biblical narrative. I, I really, you know, it's not it's not mm. front and center in my life anymore for different reasons, mm. and that would be an interesting conversation for us another time. Okay. But but I I just so um, I I just love who you are, Dennis, and uh, really appreciate you. what what you are bringing to to the people's lives that you're touching and, and to everyone. So thank you for well, sharing that you. with us here. Well, thank you. And blessings to you and your family. Thanks for listening to the soul of life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode, wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay. So you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.